0: Should we go ahead and get started? All right, good afternoon everybody. So I want to welcome everyone in the room to the Cancer Grand Rounds, and those here and those watching remotely. And uh, I think uh, with great pleasure, I'm going to introduce Dr. Hartford, who probably everybody knows. Uh, Dr. Hartford is one of us, he's a radiation oncologist, he's been here for more than 10 years, maybe 15 years. Um, Okay. And uh, you know, uh, Dr. Hartford uh, graduated from Stanford, Uh, He got his master's degree, and then he got his MD and PhD from uh, Harvard Medical School and University. Um, He's been here since uh, 2005, and um, one of our additional oncologists He's done a lot in in our section, in in the institution. He's been our section chief for more than 10 years. He's actually part of the committee here of the Cancer Grand Rounds. He's our principal investigator of the RTOG and NRG. Nationally, he's also very well known, participated in many societies, including the American College of Radiology where he chairs the Committee of uh, Standard of Practice and Parameters. Um, he's our liaison for the American College of Surgeons and the Orion Project. He has a great bibliography, more than 34 articles published in uh, great journals and uh, two book chapters at least, if not more he focused his research on the gu the uh, stereotactic radiosurgery in the brain as well as hyperbaric oxygen and um i'll leave the disclosures to him because he doesn't share that with me so <laughs> you know with um, uh, with that i think we have to uh, to end with the uh, conflict of interest statement so dr harford does not have any financial interests um He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of product or device, and is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. And with no further ado, Dr. Hartho will introduce us to innovative treatment for prostate cancer. Thank Thank
1: you. you. Uh, Can everyone hear me? Is Is this working okay? All right, well thank you so much for coming today. Um, I just wanted with this first slide to make very clear that I am not today going to talk about prostate cancer screening, which of course is something that people almost always talk about when they're talking about prostate cancer. And I don't know much about it. I was very surprised to read in the Wall Street Journal that this is now being done at airports. But I guess it's important to have a wide access for the entire population. Uh, in any case, I did want to provide a little bit of background <coughs> uh, regarding prostate cancer. I have patients come to me sometimes and say, it really doesn't matter, does it? Because uh, I've heard that you're just going to die with the disease, not die of the disease. And that's true of very, very low risk prostate cancer. We'll talk about the definition of that in just a minute. But still, it is important to understand that this is a very, very serious problem in the United States, a very pu- serious public health issue. Uh, There are more than 200,000 new cases diagnosed every year, uh, about more than 25,000 deaths per year. Uh, Almost one-third of those new cases, by the way, receive radiation therapy as part of their treatment. Uh, In total, of all the men in this room, one in seven, 14%, will be diagnosed uh, with prostate cancer during the course of your lifetime. Uh, And one in 38, so far, about um, 2 to 3% of all men in the United States die of prostate cancer. Rates of diagnosis and death uh, for African Americans, by the way, is double that it is for the general population. A uh, couple of slides. I just want to, these are not, I don't want to analyze these in great detail, but I just want to give you a little bit of feel kind of for what the data look like. Th- these are mortality rates for women in the United States. And uh, you can see that the number one cancer killer for women is lung. And number two is breast. And uh, you can see up here that lung rate, see that? That's about 40 per 100,000, okay? Just to give you some idea. And that it kind of peaked out somewhere in the early 90s. Now, what was going on with men in the early 90s? It's the same scale, by the way. This is men. So number one, you can see how horrible lung cancer is in the male population. And that, of course, is because they all started smoking about 20 to 30 years earlier. And uh, women, of course, started peaking up just because with Virginia Slims and everyone else, you know, you've come a long way, baby. Uh, Real opportunities for uh, equal, you know, equality. So that's one kind of equality that's not not needed. But I really wanted to focus on the prostate issue. This is prostate cancer. Number one cancer killer is lung. Number two is prostate. And then colorectal down here. And uh, prostate cancer in the early 90s, look at where it was. 40 per 100,000. Remember what the number was for women? That's lung cancer in women. So the rate of death in men in the early 90s in prostate cancer was the same as the rate of death in women of lung cancer. So this is a real thing. Now this number, interestingly, has been going down. Everything's been going down. Lung's been going down. Prostate's been going down. uh, Colorectal's been going down. So now, according to the CDC in 2017, the rate for lung is 52. For prostate, we're down under 20. So we cut it more than half because it was up to 40, remember, a few years ago. Colorectal is the third at 16.9. And interestingly, i just throw this out there as an observation. Number four cancer killer for men in the United States is now liver. I I was expecting pancreas. They're very close, but uh, right now it's actually liver. You can see that the data for liver has been kind of tending up a little bit. Anyway, we're not going to talk about that. Uh, And this is another really interesting slide. It makes very... Cocktail party conversation, depending upon the party you're at. Uh, but um, I just want to point out this curve here. That's the incidence of, incidence, not mortality rate, incidence of prostate cancer in men in the United States. What happened? It was kind of tending up a little bit here in the late 70s, early 80s. And somewhere around 1990, whammo, this huge spike. And it came back and settled at a much higher level and, continue, and continues on kind of at, at a higher incidence level than it was way back in the 70s. Why? Well, you all know the answer to that, or probably do. It's a PSA test, right? So what happened in the early 90s, PSA tests came into existence. All these men started getting PSA testing, and all of a sudden, all this unknown prostate cancer was diagnosed. So the incidence bumped hugely up here. And then eventually, all that excess got diagnosed, and then the the number came back down again. You can see for everything else, it's actually declining. But prostate cancer shot way up. And again, it's just being detected more often. And that that happened uh, at that point in time. And it's interesting to speculate. You know, right around that time, that number started dropping. It went from 40, as I say, it's down to under 20 at this point. And there are probably a wealth of reasons for that. But one is led to wonder... If indeed, if you're diagnosing it more often and treating it more often, doesn't that indeed lead to a um, term lower mortality? Doesn't mean we should do it in all cases. A lot of people getting treated who don't need it. But if you don't treat somebody who does need it, you're going to end up contrib- contributing to the mortality rate. Uh, so, and as you can see, there, there was no comparable spike for women in any cancers. breast kind of is trundling upwards and the others coming down. And and this is the cocktail moment, okay? I just want to share this with you. That's a really interesting little tidbit that forever after you will know and and be able to talk about. And that is, this is the overall incidence of cancer in the United States. Plotted first off by gender. So you can see male, there was this huge peak. Overall cancers, we're not talking about prostate cancer. You're taking prostate, colorectal, lung, add them all up. Huge increase in incidence in male cancers in the early 90s. But we just saw that all the others were declining. So that's, that, that spike right there, that's prostate cancer. And it's not because there was more prostate cancer. It's just because of the PSA test. So the demographics were influenced hugely by the introduction of one biochemical test. In fact, so much so, females flat, if you add men and women together and you look at the incidence of all cancer in the United States, there's this incredible lump right there in the early 90s. Why? Because of one biochemical test.
0: Isn't that interesting?
1: Anyway, it's a little bit far afield of our um, our actual talk, but it kind of gives you a little bit of a perspective. It's a real problem, real disease. Incidence has been, uh, mortality is declining. We're detecting it a lot more often. There's a test out there that's super, super, super sensitive, and we don't know exactly what to do with it. So here, this is the prostate. If you've never seen one, that's what it looks like, sort of. You have here the prostate right there. There's the bladder sitting on top of it. There's the rectum behind it. Um, A rectal exam, the the, uh, examiner is palpating the posterior border of the prostate gland. They're palpating the peripheral zone of the prostate. The prostate is actually made up of three zones. The transition zone, which sits right at the where the urethra enters the prostate gland and transitions into the prostate. 20% of cancers arise in the transition zone. The central zone is larger, at least in young men. It sits around the um, uh, ejaculatory ducts. Very seldom does cancer come from the central zone. Only 5% of cancers come from that region. But when they do, they're highly aggressive, and they tend to uh, go into the seminal vesicles. Uh, Most cancers arise from the peripheral zone, which wraps around both of these. And this is what a a prostate in a young fellow looks like with a very small transition zone. Over the decades, the transition zone gradually grows larger. And that's where BPH comes from, benign prostatic hypertrophy. And that can get so large that it actually pushes out and indents the, the uh, bladder and gets, uh, kind of dominates the prostate. Um, and uh, that, that's, that's, that's what the prostate and the rectum and such look like. This is the staging of prostate cancer, the seventh edition. This slide is good for another six weeks. Uh, in January 1, 2000, 2018, we're going to have the eighth edition of the AJCC manual. So uh, I, I give this to you um, as, uh, just a, a, as a fait accompli. Actually, there's very little change coming up in next year in the uh, TNM staging, um, and uh, I won't l- belabor you with all the details here, uh, but this will change. This is the 7th edition stage groupings, and they're going to change somewhat. Um, this is the 7th edition, but just good to familiar with, to understand the basics of it. Low-risk disease, or group 1, super low-risk, As Gleason's of six or less, that's uh, the pathology of prostate cancer, the less aggressive appearing pathology, PSA under 10, and stage T1, uh, which means not palpable. And you also can have low-risk disease where you have a little palpable nodule, but nothing more. That's T2A. But again, important point being Gleason of six or less, PSA under 10. Once a fellow comes in with a Gleason 7 tumor, meaning the pathology is looking a little bit more aggressive, uh, that already puts him into intermediate-risk disease, A PSA um, over 10, under 20, well, even if the Gleason of 6, bumps them up. Uh, So a PSA 10 cutoff is important. And then also, if you start palpating larger nodules in the prostate, that would be a T2B that bumps you up into intermediate risk. And that's 2A grouping. And this is stage grouping, by the way. They've also come up now with um, histology grouping, so it gets very confusing. Uh, group 2B is high risk disease, and that's where PSAs have gotten even higher over 20. Remember, normal PSAs under 4 and a Gleason of 8 are higher. So, this is, but the disease is not outside the gland by palpation. So, that's stage 2B. And then stage 3 is anything that's pal- palpable outside the gland. What's changing in the 8th edition is these are actually moving to stage 3. So, AJCC. 8th uh, edition is going to be quite radically different from priors, and you've probably heard about this in the context of other histologies as well. Breast cancer, for example, getting incredibly complicated. A lot of the staging is being driven by uh, findings at pathology uh, and biochemical <coughs> markers and molecular markers and that sort of thing. Uh, and that's, that's becoming true for prostate cancer. So this is the first time in prostate cancer that a stage 3 disease is actually still with disease that may be limited to the gland but has higher histology or Gleason score. So I don't want to belabor this too much, simply that you understand there are different risk levels. A very, very low risk here. uh, Probably maybe watched without necessarily doing anything about it. But once you start looking at higher risk groupings, then you need to think about what you're going to do about that person's disease. And uh, the three major sort of bread and butter treatments that uh, if a, a person shows up with higher risk disease and they need treatment or would like treatment and it's appropriate, Then you primarily think about surgery versus radiation. Radiation comes in two two, uh, flavors, vanilla and chocolate. There's external beam radiation, and there's brachytherapy. So either one, and all three of these are perfectly fine options for doing treatment for low to low intermediate risk disease. We'll talk about the higher grades, higher risk diseases in just a moment. But right now, what I'd like to focus on is brachytherapy. And that too comes in different flavors. Uh, and there's low dose rate and high dose rate. The high dose rate uh, is delivered. Uh, the, the, this is a slightly different way of treatment, and we don't do it here. And the reason is, uh, A, it requires hospitalization of the patient, and B, it's been associated with some higher risk of urinary issues. So uh, we have not pursued this very aggressively. We've always, when we do brachy, we've always been doing low dose rate. Low dose rate means you put, uh, um, the brachytherapy implant in, and you leave it there. And then you don't pull it back out. The high-dose rate, uh, the, because these are high-dose rate um, uh, sources, they have to come back out, otherwise uh, it would be horribly toxic. So uh, I'd like to just focus our attention on the low-dose rate for a minute. Now, what's happening with low-dose rate brachytherapy? We're taking radioactive nuc- nucleides and uh, radioactive sources, and we're putting them inside people, and we're letting them radiate a tumor. Uh, there are two giants of science who contributed to this idea. One of them you would most likely be able to guess, the other you would most likely have no clue until I tell you that this person actually contributed. But the one you almost certainly could guess, and who's uh, one of the greatest women of the 20th century, perhaps B, I mean, at least top 10, um, would be um, um, Marie Curie. And, um, she had so many firsts behind her that it's just phenomenal. She was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, and that was in 1903. She was 36 years old. By the way, they were tough back then. She got her Ph.D. awarded that summer, and they gave her the Nobel Prize in December. <laughs> you think your thesis committee is tough, I mean, look at that. But also, I mean, she was a woman at a time when women are, I mean, she she had to earn her her stripes and then ten times over, which she did. Um, She ended up being the first female professor at the University of Paris. By the way, she's the first woman entombed on her own merits in the Pantheon in Paris. I think there's some who got there by uh, birth or lineage or, or marriage. She's the only woman to win Nobel Prizes in two fields. Only one. And she is the only human being in human history to win two Nobel Prizes in different branches of science. And by the way, the Curie family in total generated five Nobel Prizes. (laughs) Isn't that so? Anyway, um, now that was the one you probably should have guessed, because you have to have that radioactive source to be able to poke it inside a tumor. But who actually came up with the idea? Da, 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 da. No, okay, uh, that would be, yes, you you knew it, you were thinking it, Alexander Graham Bell. Can you believe it? Yeah, I mean, he's, everybody thinks of him about the telephone, but he's actually the grandfather of brachytherapy. And what Marie Curie and her husband, they found radium is like in the late 19th century, like 1890-something, rather. She got the Nobel Prize in 1903. He, had, he made this comment before she got the Nobel, but the radium, of course, was at that point known. Uh, he wrote, there is no reason why a tiny fragment of radium sealed in a fine glass tube should not be inserted into the very heart of the cancer, thus acting directly upon the disease material. Would it not be worthwhile making ex- experiments along this line? A sharp cookie, huh? Anyway, so yeah, so people picked up on it. In 1910, they first tried it with the prostate. They put radium inside the urethra and radiated through the urethra, and they did you know, see some regression of tumor. It probably hurt the urethra a lot. But um, anyway, in 1930, uh, the gold liquid, radioactive gold, was injected into the prostate. And that was also, in a sense, brachytherapy. Um, For real brachytherapy, where they were really doing what Bell had suggested, uh, where they're putting, you know, little containers of radioactive material inside the gland. That happened in the 70s. Access to the prostate at that point was through open prostatectomy, so it was a a transabdominal approach and this was done at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, They weren't able to generate really smooth dosimetry at that point, uh, but a very clever guy, uh, Hans Holm in University of Copenhagen in Denmark in 1983, he performed the non-surgical implant where they actually went in through the perineum and were able to put radioactive material into the prostate directly. And that was picked up very shortly thereafter by Blasco and colleagues out in Seattle. You've probably heard of the Seattle Prostate Institute. That's where it came from. And that's when uh, prostate cancer, brachytherapy, was truly born here in the United States. And this is what it looks like. A patient in the OR, he's asleep, or uh, almost always, may have a spinal, usually asleep, and his legs are up in stirrups. Um, We have a, there's the perineum. The scrotum is taped out of the way up there. We have an ultrasound probe within the rectum so we can see what we're doing. Needles are then inserted through the perineum into the prostate gland, and Bob's your uncle. (laughs) Don't try it at home, man. (laughs) So so, (laughs) this is what the seeds look like. You have three varieties. You have iodine, palladium, and cesium, and talk more about those in just a minute. So we put the seeds in under direct ultrasound guidance, and then we can also see what we're doing using fluoride. This is an ultrasound, of course, and then we also use fluoroscopy for further verification. Um, one thing we do at Dartmouth, which not everyone does, but um, actually there's some literature published on this showing that you get better results. Uh, we do all of our planning intraoperatively. Uh, and one can do a mix to intra and extra op, but we currently do all of our planning intraoperatively. And this is an example. This is an implant we just did about two weeks ago, And uh, you can see we have the ultrasound image, and then we delineate the volume of the prostate on multiple um, uh, axial slices, and then we determine where the seeds are going to go. This is all, of course, still in the computer. We haven't actually done anything yet. And one then can virtually uh, model what the actual radiation dose will look like if the seeds go where they're supposed to. So this red line here, you can see the purple is the prostate, and uh, it's a mnemonic. And then the uh, orange here is the 100% isodose line. so that's the dose we want to treat to. You can see that we've tailored it to be very tight on the posterior edge of the prostate because we want to spare the rectal wall, which is the dark blue here. This line here, just to give you an idea what the falloff is, uh, gets you down already to uh, 50%. So the off is really quite quick. Um, we also have drawn what we call no-fly zones. So you can see the light blue line here um, that's um, a distance of five millimeters from the rectal wall. We don't want any seeds that close to the rectal wall. Similarly, we have a no-fly zone around the urethra here. We can do this with cesium. I'll explain why in just a second. And it allows us to do very nice implants and avoid uh, putting a seeds too close to structures where they could do damage or potentially poke into things. Um, so these are the three varieties of uh, isotopes, which uh, currently have traditionally been used for prostate brachytherapy. Uh, uh, I-125 came around first. Uh, that w- was originally introduced back in 1965, and it was, and it's still used today. It's really, in a, in a sense, the bread and butter of many people's uh, brachytherapy practices. Uh, it has uh, a half-life of 60 days, two months, and its energy level is nearly 30 keV, which gives it a nice throw, in a sense, the amount of radiation you can extend out from the seed outwards. Uh, but that half-life, that means that you have detectable radiation in, the, in your body for 600 days. Um, so if you go through an airport scanner, you will be picked up. And if you uh, are having uh, ha- uh, symptoms, that, that, that can be an issue. So the palladium came along in 1986. Many people switched to palladium because they had a very short half-life, only two and a half weeks, 17 days. However, the energy was much lower. And going from 28 kV down to 20 uh, or 21 kV gave you much shorter throw. So if your seed can't throw the radiation as far, you have to put many more seeds in the gland, and you end up kind of peppering the prostate. That's not so bad in and of itself, but it's difficult to make sure that you've got the seeds in exactly the right spot. So once you actually do the implant, you then have hot spots and cold spots. Furthermore, then you're very close to the urethra, you're close to the rectal wall, you're close to the bladder wall, because you have to get the dose out to the edge. So that can cause some issues. And then the cesium, that was introduced in 2004. They actually marketed it to us back then, and we said, well, let's hold off for just a minute. And the reason we said that was because of this, this half-life, under 10 days. So that means the dose is delivered super, super, super fast. Uh, You get three half-lives in less than a month. And uh, that means that all of the radiation is out of the body in 97 days. Compare that to 600 days for iodine. So much faster radiation delivery that means that your capacity for the normal tissues to respond to that is going to be very different, both in the short term and the long term. And if you want to be super careful, you'll let other people walk onto that ice and figure out how much can be given to what volume before getting into trouble. So we, we, we were very, we stuck with palladium for a long time. However, this past year, Uh, There's been a good deal of data now that's come out about cesium, and people now have very nice dose-volume relationships, and so we figured out how to do that. Uh, So the other thing, very nice thing about cesium, is the uh, 30 kV uh, energy. So that's even a little stronger than iodine. That means it's got a very nice throw. You don't have to get close to the rectal wall. You don't have to get close to the bladder or to the um, uh, urethra. Uh, You can follow those no-fly zones I just showed you and and have a great deal of confidence you're going to be able to cover the prostate without getting into a lot of trouble anatomically. Now this is the half-life, I I talked about that, just to kind of really bring that to perspective here. uh, This compares cesium against iodine. Remember, iodine has that two-month half-life, cesium 10 days. So that means you peak out, these are uh, urinary side effects, you peak out urinary side effects, uh, within uh, uh, just a, a one to two months after the implant. Actually, usually within the month. And when you get out to three or four months, you're already back near, back to close to baseline. It gradually uh, tends downward over longer. Uh, iodine, on the other hand, you peak out fairly soon. However, look at how it just keeps going and going. So it can actually take a year before it comes back to a, a, a level that's, that's more palatable. And uh, I, back in the old days, when I treated patients with iodine, you had them come back uh, six months after the implant. They're still very unhappy. And so this is much more. It, I warn the patients now with the cesium. I say, for two to four weeks, you're not going to be happy I talked you into the implant. You will not consider Dr. Hartford your friend. In fact, you'll be angry at me. Because they're getting up every hour at night. They're urinating all the time. And when they go anywhere, they're looking for the bathroom just in case. They feel like they've got to go. They know where to go. Uh, but but we see them back at four weeks, and lo and behold, at four weeks, you know what, they're already starting to feel better. And they get out six weeks, two months, and they're really feeling quite, quite, quite chirpy. Uh, these are the brachytherapy outcomes for kind of some very classic data, uh, dating all the way from 1999. Remember the introduction of brachytherapy in the United States was uh, in, in, in the mid-'80s. So um, you know, here we're reporting five-year results, so th- this is some very early data. From Blasco, that was Seattle, 2000. He was one of the innovators. Zolevsky beat him out of Memorial. So, uh, at his own risk, however, it's clear that he didn't quite get the technique down path Because even in the low-risk group, uh, he was having a biochemical control only in about 80% of cases, which is a bit of an outlier. However, uh, you can see there's a learning curve. in Late, to, you tend, eight years later, this number is 96%. So, for low-risk disease, control rates uh, at five years are somewhere on the order of 80 to 90% with C, uh, which is just fine. However, you get to intermediate risk and high-risk disease, and these numbers decline. So intermediate risk is somewhere on the, on the order of 70 to 80% uh, control at five years, and high-risk disease, the number is more like 50 to 60%. You say, well, that's really not very good, is it? Well, the answer is, well, it's, it is what it is, uh, because with surgery, it's about the same. If anything, surgery is surgery, certainly no better. So this is a huge, huge um, stable of patients, nearly 3,000 patients treated with radical retropubic prostatectomy out at Hamburg. From the early 90s through mid-2000s, and uh, you see low risk, uh, uh, the probability of uh, uh, biochemical control at 60 months at five years was between 80 and 90 percent for low risk. uh, But intermediate risk, it's somewhere between 60 and 70 percent, and high risk is actually under 50 percent. So brachytherapy certainly mimics surgery in a lot of respects. Um, So you then say, well, all right, but those are not very good percentage control rates, especially for the the intermediate and high risk. You've got to do something else. And by the way, why are we not controlling the disease? Well, you're not treating all of it. You've got disease already that's pushed outside the prostate. Once you get an intermediate high-risk disease, likelihood of extracapsular disease extension, extension into seminal vesicles, extension into lymph nodes, into periprostatic tissues, those risks go up. So what are you going to do about that? You have to treat it. And you're not going to treat it by taking the prostate out. You're not going to treat it by doing brachytherapy to the prostate. You've got to treat the tissues around it. How are you going to do that? Well, you can do that with external beam radiation, right? Right. So um, over the course of the last 20 years, um, there have been real innovations in how we do external beam radiation. Uh, And those really have included both uh, dosing and the volumes that we're treating and also how we target. I'm going to walk you very quickly in how those innovations in targeting have occurred. Um, uh, oh, and by the way, one other thing. Is radiation important? I just wanted to throw this in. The answer is yes. Uh, these are uh, five huge randomized studies looking at treating high-risk disease. So the question is, radiation important for high-risk disease? And this shows that you get better overall survival long-term if you do radiation and hormones together. And now you're going to say, now wait a minute, Dr. Hart, you're pulling the wool over my eyes because these studies all are comparing <coughs> Radiation with hormones versus radiation alone, right? So for example, here we have Bola's study where you have radiation alone, radiation and hormones. Hormones add to the radiation. So oh my gosh, it's not the radiation. You just need the hormones. Don't need the radiation at all, wrong. The Swedes took it to heart, and they did this study. And they looked at eight, nearly 900 patients, all of them with high-risk disease. All of them got hormones. And half of them got radiation, and half of them didn't. So what happens? Guess what? at 10 years double the number who died with radiation died with hormones alone. So your survival rate was um, a cost-specific mortality was 24% with hormones, only 12% if you added in the radiation. So eight weeks of radiation along with many years of hormones, a good idea if you have high-risk disease. Um, and there were other cancers, there, there were other uh, outcome features that they also looked at, but that's really the take-home message. So short answer. If you're going to treat high risk disease you treat it with hormones and you treat it with radiation. Hormone improves survival over uh, and radiation improves survival over hormones alone and definitely you want to combine the two. So what's the best way to do that? By the way, this is what a linear accelerator looks like. The patient getting treated, there you have the linac. A cutaway of the linac, you can see this is called a waveguide. Uh, electrons get shot in here at a fast speed and then they super fast accelerate to this end where they're traveling nearly at the speed of light, slam into a tungsten target. The acceleration inside the tungsten generates all these uh, packets of energy called photons which get released. And these photons then sh- are shed in different directions and there are ways to then shape and uh, collimate and shade the beam such that you get a nice conformal distribution, whatever it is that you want it to actually treat here at the end. So, for example, let's say you want to use external beam uh, radiation to treat a prostate. So this would be a prostate right there. That's the rectum. That's the symphysis pubis, the, the bone at the front of the uh, pelvis, there, very hips. Now, you could just use a single radiation beam and shoot it right in there and hit the prostate, and that'd be fine. However, that's not such a good idea because you're putting a lot of radiation in the rectum. You're putting a ton of radiation in up front because it decays. And it gets absorbed, so the radiation dose declines as you go through. So instead, back in the 80s, there was something developed called the four-field box technique. So you ended up treating from the front, the back, the left, and the right. A guy named Bagshaw, Malcolm Bagshaw at Stanford, actually was kind of the guy who really propelled this. And uh, so for quite a time, the prostate was getting treated basically in a box. And back in the 80s, people had no way of doing three-dimensional conformal radiation planning. So basically it was an off-on, kind of you drew a circle or a little oval. And that was the area that got treated. Then along came uh, three-dimensional conformal radiation. That meant that you had CT scans. that allowed you in three dimensions to reconstruct the targets. You also developed, uh, there were devices that were developed to actually shape the beams uh, rather than just pouring one block. So it was possible then to have these what are called multi-leaf collimators. And these can change shape very easily. And so you could treat one shape and treat a different shape. And it, what didn't take very long, that very clever people figured out that you could actually use this in a dynamic way so that you could treat a shape and then next thing you know move a leaf and then treat a slightly different shape. And if you did this done many number of times, you would actually be modulating the intensity of the radiation, intensity modulated radiation therapy, IMRT. So that happened uh, in the 90s and you can just imagine these leaves moving in and out yeah, as the treatment is happening. And so what was this simple box now becomes that. And you now have radiation being delivered at different angles. And at each angle, some of the beam is on, some of it, the beam is off, some of it is warmer, some of it is cooler. And the overlap of all of that in three dimensions then defines this complex shape which is created around the prostate gland. And you can see you're now getting the, the high-dose region here is uh, the orange and the yellow, and you can see those colors here. Again, the prostate here is red. So you're able to get these colors, and you get a concavity. You can actually make high dose into a concave shape with straight lines, isn't you know, it, something? Um, and you end up then pulling dose away from the rectum. You can pull dose away from the hips. That's illustrated in these slides. So 3D on the top, IMRT on the bottom. This is an axial distribution looking bottom up from the patient's feet towards the top of their head. Here's the rectum. You can see now the dose has been pushed up away from the rectum. This is a sagittal cut. You can see that um, it's uh, basically, again, you're pulling these uh, uh, dose lines away from the rectum, pushing them forwards. Here, uh, coronal shows very nicely how the dose is pushed away from the hips. So you can do much more conformal radiation, which is great. And so what are you doing? You are sparing normal tissue, right? You're getting... M- you're you're taking the dose away from all these tissues which otherwise can get damaged. And that's the point. You're improving the amount of dose you can give without, while lessening the dose to the surrounding tissue. Well, that's great. Now, if the prostate were an absolutely static piece of bone or somehow attached to the pubis, you wouldn't really have to worry about it being, quote-unquote, accurate, uh, because it wouldn't move. As it stands, it's a bit of soft tissue stuck between the bladder and the rectum. Rectum full, rectum empty, bladder full, bladder empty, prostate shifts around and moves. It can move a couple of centimeters, an inch. And if you're trying to be super conformal and the darn thing is moving around, you're going to end up not hitting all of it and at the same time hitting some rectum or hitting some bladder or whatever it is that happens to be in the way. So you can't really do IMRT without doing also something called image-guided radiation therapy, IGRT, And we've been doing that for more than a decade. And what we do there is we put little gold coils, 24-karat gold, inside the prostate. And then every day when the patient's getting treated, we can take an image and do that in three dimensions. Uh, So uh, an oblique image from the right, oblique image from the left. And then very easily one can see where these coils are and their little uh, matching uh, templates, which we then put on top. And then to the millimeter, we can then accurately treat the prostate. So, IMRT... High GRT, put them together, you get better conformality. And now, if you have better conformality, you should have fewer side effects. And being a radiation oncologist, if you have fewer side effects, what are you going to want to do? Or you're going to want to raise the dose, because if you put in more dose, you're going to have more tumor control. And that's what we're shooting at, those low tumor control rates we were, we we're worried about. And so that, by definition, is, you know, <clears throat> uh, better response, you know, with fewer adverse outcomes. That ratio is the therapeutic ratio, and we want to improve that therapeutic ratio. Uh, by the way, is dose important? Well, we already know you've got to put some dose in there, either, otherwise you're back in that Swedish study giving hormones alone. God, the dose matters at some level, but do these high doses matter? So we're right now, you know, back in the old days, back in the 90s, we were giving 70 gray. Well, is 70 gray important, or do we want to give more? And the answer is, well, maybe we should give more. A very early study that looked at that, by the way, with protons, Uh, was a Zeitman study from um, Mass General and published in JAMA in 2005. And what they did (coughs) was, uh, this is um, basically uh, intermediate risk, but not too high intermediate risk. And they randomized between 70 gray and 79 gray. And to get fancy, they gave the boost with protons rather than with photons. But you can give the boost with photons if you have IMRT, IGRT. So uh, they found at five years, look at that. 80% 80% versus 60% in uh, biochemical survival. Uh, so the PSA came back in 40% of the guys who only got 70 gray. The PSA only came back in half of those, 20%, with the guys who got protons. And that was true both in the lower risk and the higher risk uh, subgroups. At five years, no difference in survival, but that's no surprise. You've got to wait longer than that before you start seeing survival issues with, pros- with prostate cancer. And they found no differences in grade three or four morbidities. Remember that number, three or four. So low risk, intermediate risk, Uh, you can see high-dose versus conventional dose, uh, the uh, biochemical relapse clearly better in the high-dose arm, Uh, and um, there's that. So this is a summary slide of several randomized trials, again, showing the same thing, and it's been demonstrated in several trials, uh, not just in the United States and Canada, but in Europe and uh, our friends in Australia and such. Uh, Here's Zeidman's paper, which I just showed you. Five-year cancer control rate, biochemical-free survival, 80 versus 60%. A uh, large study that came out of MD Anderson found only marginal improvement. may have been a targeting issue. They, they published a little earlier, and we're using slightly different techniques. Beckendorf showed, again, about a 10% improvement. Um, so dose does make a difference, but um, you do see differences in toxicities. Now, the grade 3, grade 4, like I just showed you, were the same. A grade 2 or higher, there is a difference. So, for example, in Zeitman's paper, 9% versus 18, 12 versus 26, 14 versus 20. So clearly you are having some rectal issues, and rectal issues can lead to more rectal issues uh, with the higher doses. And you'd rather that didn't happen. In fact, you like, like to move it lower rather than higher. And that's the whole point of doing IMRT, IGRT in the first place, right, is to try to get more dose in without harming normal tissue. And by the way, do um, toxicities matter from a, an insurance Public health point of view, the answer is you betcha. So um, a grade one rectal toxicity is estimated to cost the um, uh, cost of treatment is around $400. Grade two is estimated around 4000 That means there's some kind of medical intervention going on. Grade three, now you're talking about uh, endoscopies and fulgurations, uh, maybe over 20000 probably as an outpatient. Grade four, now you're talking about fistulas, major surgeries, horrible things. Uh, costs there running eighty to $90,000. <clears> so you know, it's real stuff. Um, this is a very nice paper, uh, which was published in 2013. It was an offshoot of the uh, o, 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 o 126 r 2 six R2AG trial, which looked at uh, randomized between 70 and 79 gray. Both IMRT and 3D conformal radiation were allowed on this study. So here, the authors are interested not in the question of outcome vis-à-vis cancer control, but outcome vis-à-vis toxicities, and they're looking at dose issues and also technology issues. It doesn't matter if you're using IMRT versus 3D. And uh, the long, if you just analyze looking at uh, technologies, you don't find differences. So, for example, the grade 2, um, grade 3, uh, side effect issues, um, no difference between 3D and IMRT. You say, oh, geez, I mean, all this money's been spent on on IMRT and it doesn't do anything. Well, that's not exactly right. So what you do is you look at the dose-volume relationships. And here you see very real differences in um, development of grade 2 or higher GI toxicities as a function of dose-volume relationships. This chart um, is 70 gray going to 15% of the rectal wall this chart is uh, 75 grade going to 10% of the rectal wall. Uh, when these are actually, if you think about it, you don't get the one without the other. It's very hard to tease these out. It can be done, but that requires a little bit of, it requires good data and some, a bit of statistics. But short answer is you get to high doses, you, you see differences in outcome even to doses to small volumes of the rectum. That's the point. So it's not, we're not talking about 40% of the rectal wall, we're talking about 10% of the rectal wall. So can you do something about that? And the answer is, well, yeah, you can. And clever people uh, in, in all around the world have been trying to basically get the rectum away from the prostate. If you can get the rectum out of the way of the radiation dose, you'll be able to lower that toxicity risk. And this is a summary slide showing a very nice review that was published a couple of years ago in the Red Journal, looking at um, several papers which used uh, a... a um, Uh, And uh, ester hydrogel, hyaluronic acid, collagen, and even rectal balloons were trying to push the rectum away from the prostate gland. Um, A rectal balloon, by the way, is inside the rectum, so you're not actually going to get the anterior portion of the rectal wall away, but you'll at least be able to get the middle and the posterior portion of the rectal wall away. Uh, But uh, we're going to, I'm going to focus specifically on this PEG hydrogel because that's now been the one that's been most explored. You can see that several publications there on it. And it's also um, got a very unique feature, which I'll mention in just a moment. This is a really cool paper. It's published fairly early in this uh, quest for how to move the rectum. And this was published in Spain by uh, Dr. Prada. Uh, It was published in Brachytherapy in 2009. It was a randomized study, and they looked at uh, patients getting iodine implants, and half of them had hyaluronic acid injected into the space between the prostate and the rectum, the prostate-rectal interface. And uh, follow-up was good at 18 months. Uh, they did um, repeat proctoscopies at that point, and they found that there was mucosal damage in the control patients to somewhere around one in three, 36%. R- 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 mucosal damage with those who had that hydrogel put in was only 5%. Macroscopic rectal bleeding uh, was seen in 12% of control and absolutely none in the patients who got the spacers put in. Uh, and you say, well, gee, really? You just put a little glue in there and push the darn thing out of the way, and then that makes a huge difference. Well, the answer is, again, remember, we're talking about brachytherapy in this case especially. So one centimeter with those seeds that we were looking at is like the distance between San Francisco and New York. Uh, the, 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 The seed can't throw the radiation that far. So you just push it a little bit further away, it doesn't get there. So that's the bottom line concept. Now, why didn't everybody start running around putting in hyaluronic acid? Well, the problem with hyaluronic acid doesn't go away. So you put it in and it just sits there. So that's not all that attractive. Probably, you know, Patients don't necessarily like the idea of having something, some goop in there forever, forever. So um, some very clever people got together and um, uh, put together a, a gel. It's a um, hydrogel. It's primarily water in an ester matrix. And it's, you use it with an accelerant. The accelerant makes it gel up into a gummy bear-like substance. Uh, in about ten seconds or less, and then that gummy bear is sitting there between the prostate and the rectum for three months, and it does nothing except keep the rectum at bay. Then it very gradually dissolves, and it's water, and it, like I said, just in this ester matrix, so it literally just dissolves, goes away, and it's entirely non-toxic. And it's similar similar gels are used in other parts of the body, parts of the body for different things, say, such as in ophthalmological procedures and such. Anyway. So um, this is a company, and I'm not naming it, and I'm not naming the brand or the, the, the actual product, um, just to keep things clean. But uh, it's, uh, it's pretty clever, and they've published a number of papers on it. And this, this paper was really the definitive paper. It came out uh, last year in the Red Journal, 2016. It's their long-term results. So uh, the actual system was approved by the FDA in 2015. It is the only FDA-approved absorbable hydrogel for placement between pr- prostate and rectum. And uh, this multi-institutional trial we'll talk about in just a moment. And by the way, there were earlier published results that show that um, um, almost 100%, 97% or more, had at least a 25% relative reduction in the rectal B70. So that high dose that we were talking about. And clinical improvements in rectal toxicity and quality of life were um, uh, seen. And this is the long-term follow-up data. Uh, how was the study done in low intermediate risk prostate cancers, um, good zoo-, zoo broads, good performance status? They excluded high-risk disease. Uh, It was randomized two-to-one between the spacer and control groups so that patients who were signing up had a good chance of getting the spacer, made it attractive for them because once they heard about it, they really liked the idea. It's patient-blinded. It's very interesting the way they did this. They didn't tell the patients if they were putting them in or not. Um, You can get away with that if you got the patient under anesthesia and you're already putting in those coils I was talking about. So they would put in the um, fiducial markers, and then in, if you were randomized to the spacer, after the fiducials were put in, they put in the, uh, the spacer, and they just didn't tell you when you woke up. And, of course, at some point in time, I think most patients found out, I'm sure. But, um, and it's so benign that most patients don't feel anything after it's there. So they wake up and, you know, if you prod them, they say, well, it might have, my bowel movement might have, felt a little, might have felt a little full, a little different. Uh, but that's about it. And after a day or two, that even that feeling, if it's there, goes away. Uh, and uh, they use state-of-the-art planning, and they use state-of-the-art, state-of-the-art dose, uh, 79 gray, 44 fractions, which is what we do here as well. They were followed at 3, 6, 12, 15 months, and then at 3 years. Uh, adverse events, significant adverse events were scored as per um, standard. And um, anything that happened up to 3 months was classified as acute. Anything after that was late. Quality of life was collected in two ways both using physician-reported data and also patient-reported epic questionnaires. So this is really, really good data. Uh, and they uh, scored the quality of life data on, the, uh, as, on a basis of minimally important differences, MID. So a bowel score of minimum five points different, that score is minimally important. In other words, minor difference in quality of life was not. And these are a- accepted in the uh, published literature as being significant for quality of life. So 5.6 points for urinary, sexual 11, vitality, hormonal, energy level, 5 points. And standard definitions for biochemical failure. So there were 73 patients in the control group, 149 in the spacer group. Demographics were the same at 15 months. Uh, almost everyone was available at three years. They still had two-thirds of in both arms. Um, by the way, this is what the spacer looks like, uh, if you were wondering. Um, this is an MRI before. Is put in, so we're looking at the patient from their feet. We're looking up, and that's the rectum. That's the prostate. The right hip is over here. The left hip is over here. When you, the spacer is put in, um, what's happening is the patient, a needle is introduced between the prostate and the rectum, as you can see here. And then this is injected. And the uh, gel literally forms within seconds, and then it just sits there. And uh, that's how it looks at three months, and at six months it's gone. Uh, this is how it's actually done. The patient, you already saw the position they're in. They're in the, um, you know, up with their feet in stirrups, and an ultrasound probe in the rectum. And the needle is introduced transperineally like this, and on the ultrasound you can see the prostate. You can see the rectal wall. You know the target you want, and you very, very carefully bring the needle in above the rectal wall so you don't get into um, perirectal uh, fascia. And there is a potential space here, usually a little fat plane you can get into. And once that's square and you're very sure you're where you want to be, then you inject. And uh, that's that's the gel and that's the accelerant. And when they go in together, the accelerant then makes that it's like epoxy glue. It, it then immediately binds up. Otherwise, it would take you know, it would it wouldn't bind up for for, for, for forever. So. Um, Uh, uh, These are the results in the short term. Nearly everyone in this study uh, who was randomized to getting the spacer had it successfully placed. Uh, Most immediately, dose volume histogram reductions uh, show improvement at all levels. So the V70, which is kind of what we've been focusing on, drops uh, from a control rate of nearly 12% of the rectal wall down to only 3% we are really, really eliminating a large amount of high dose to the rectal wall. And you get down to looking at really high doses, you get from 40% down to almost zero. Uh, in the short term, patients who had the space reported less acute rectal pain during treatment. Toxicity reductions reported, again, lower at one year. And patient reported quality of life benefits were also uh, 4% <coughs> less likely to, re- to, to have long-term bowel issues. <coughs> Excuse me. Late GI toxicity, spatial patients, um, as I said, had less rectal toxicity at three years. Grade two or higher was zero versus 6%. Grade one or higher. No one ever talks about grade one, but now we do. Grade one, 2% versus 9%. And fewer spacer patients, patients had declines in bowel quality of life at thresholds of both one and two times minimally important differences. When you get to twice a minimally important difference, that, you're talking real, you know, patients' notes a real difference in their life. <coughs> Very real. So, um, similarly, uh, interestingly, urinary uh, issues, there were some uh, improvements there as well. Um, control patients more likely had some urinary spotting or incontinence, and uh, also in terms of quality of life, um, uh, long-term, there was a difference seen uh, at both one and two times minimally important differences. If you look at all three <coughs> major um, Uh, major features of quality of life in in these cases, meaning uh, GIGU and sexual, and what percentage of patients reported at least a one-fold MID difference in all three three domains, uh, they dropped from 20% to 2.5%. So 20% were reporting declines um, in all three uh, at uh, one-times MID, and if you get down to really significant differences in quality of life, uh, you have none reported as declining two times MID in all three domains for the spacer patients, while that number is 12.5 for uh, those who um, were in the control group. (coughs) This slide just makes a very simple point that uh, some people argue, well, maybe three years isn't long enough. Maybe you have to wait longer to actually see whether the difference is real. And the fact of the matter is that Uh, There's good data for very long-term follow-ups. This came out of the Czech Republic that showed uh, improvement in, excuse me, not improvement, but a flattening of the uh, rectal toxicities uh, at, uh, at four to five years. And once you got out to three years, you really are almost all there. And so there's no peak or bump later on. And there was a paper published out of Germany which looked at very long term follow up at five years, and that too showed significant improvements in bowel toxicity, very long term, and also sexual quality of life at five years for all patients it was significantly improved uh, for the control uh, in the space for patients versus controls. Um, so, summary uh, in worldwide, a total of about 15,000 cases have been um, treated so far. Uh, rates of reported uh, adverse events with um, actual injection, only about 1 in 3,000 cases. There have been, of those 15,000, about 10,000 here in the United States. Currently, there are about 200 centers with about 500 certified <clears throat> physicians doing this. Um, AUA and ASTRO together presented an application at the AMACPT editorial board, just so you know. And the code has been accepted by Medicare, and it's be effective in January of 2018. That's at a national level. Our local carrier has not yet accepted it, so that's another matter. But and it, we're not worried about the payment issue. Uh, just from a medical uh, issue, I think it's pretty clear. Um, and uh, what we see here is, you know, we were talking about 3D radi- radiation, then IMRT, and, he, um, and you can see the IMRT and IGRT together. Uh, the percentage of reduction uh, in um, uh, Median, uh, median rectal V70, there's a you know, good reduction here. But in the median V70, then if you add on the spacer on top of that, you get numbers which are like oh, under 5%. It's, it's, it's an dosimetrist. I don't know if there are any here today, but they look at me and kind of, they say, wow, this is really amazing. Um, and then the associated toxicities as reported in various trials you know, mirror uh, that improvement. Uh, by the way, our experience—this was the first. Our first hydrogel was done in January. We put one in January 23rd. Uh, up to this point in time, we put in about 40. This can be done under conscious sedation, general anesthesia, or local. Uh, there have been no untoward effects so far reported by patients who've had this done, um, and uh, that—and that 100% of the patients we've done so far, we put the gel where it was supposed to go, and we've had a nice little separation afterwards. So that—that—that that, that, so far, so good. Um, we clearly see reductions in the DVHs, and we are, by the way, the only institution right now in uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, or Maine, that is doing this. And in New England, we are one of a handful, and we are in good company with Yale, uh, the Rigman Women's, uh, the Farber, the Leahy, and the Mass General. Uh, by the way, this is an implant. I mean, we just did this MRI yesterday. Guy had his seeds put in four weeks ago, 23 days to be exact. And he came back in for follow-up, you know, CT scan, assessment of toxicities, and an MRI. This is what it looks like in real life. Uh, Again, this was just yesterday. You can see here, again, orient, you're looking bottom up from the feet upwards to the hips. There is the prostate. You can actually see the little seeds in there, see them around the edge of the prostate gland. Isn't that nice? And then you can see this white thing right there. That's the gel, and very nicely pushing the rectum back another view, you can see it's sagittally. I, I like this a lot. This, I think this gives a really good idea. So this is a mid-cut right down the middle. Uh, and you have here the uh, pubic symphysis. Here there's uh, the, um, the back at the bottom of the spine. Yeah. And you can see here, um, or I don't know about that. Am I oriented right? Yeah, that, that's right. And here's the uh, rectum. And you can see here the prostate. And there's the bladder on top, right? And there's the urethra. And there's the urethral neck, the bladder neck. And that white... Right there. See that? That's the gel. And see how nicely that gets in between the rectum and the prostate here? So that, and that, again, for, for a seed implant, that makes all the difference. And for external beam, too. So one last thing, um, which I'd like to mention, is that uh, we are learning more and more about dose escalation. And this was a very important study that came out uh, of our, from our Canadian friends um, and was just published um, uh, uh, last year. And it's a huge study, came out of British Columbia, and it was called ASCEND, and that stands for androgen suppression combined with elective nodal and dose-escalated radiation therapy, which is a long-winded, long-winded way of saying that they're throwing all three modalities at uh, these intermediate and high-risk prostate cancers. So it includes seeds, external beam, and uh, hormones. And uh, the idea with seeds is that you can put the seeds into the prostate rather than treat with external beam for 44 treatments for nine weeks. You just do five weeks of treatment, treat the larger volume, and then put the seeds in as a boost, and you can boost to a higher dose using the seeds than you can with the external beam. And uh, people have tried, there have been two other randomized trials, by the way, that have looked at boosting along with external beam radiation uh, using um, uh, brachytherapy, but in both cases they used iridium. And different techniques, different technologies, different results. But And certainly not with the high-dose features we have here. So this is really the one and only trial that really explored this well. Um, and there were two arms. Uh, all got hormones and, half, as I say, half got uh, only radiation externally, the other half got radiation. They were using iodine, so they're still in that iodine world. And... Um, and, um, again, intermediate or high-risk patients, uh, and their primary endpoint was biochemical f- uh, progression-free survival, and they looked at secondary endpoints as well. Uh, they had a specified uh, endpoint of a median follow-up of five years or adverse events uh, or uh, such. But it was the median follow-up of five years that, that uh, hit, their, hit their target. Uh, that was reached in the summer of 2014. And um, uh, the, uh, there were almost 400 patients accrued, a median follow-up was uh, five years after treatment completion, six, six and a half years after hormones were started. Um, as you see, many were high risk uh, with Gleason's of eight or higher, 40%. Uh, incoming PSAs of almost 20%, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, over 20 of almost 20%. So a lot of uh, high-risk disease. Uh, also, they found that percentage of um, positive cores was a significant indicator of um, uh, risk, and uh, they factored that in as well. And uh, to cut to the bottom line, uh, we'll just look at this. Uh, this is the overall endpoint of biochemical progression-free survival. And the difference between the two arms is P.001. So that's a highlight right there that this is going to be something to pay attention to. Um, the actual numbers you can see right here in the red the, the, the red. Uh, the ones who got the seed implant at, you look at seven to nine years. The numbers really start teasing apart at seven to nine years. At seven years, you're looking at the control arm being 75%, uh, the seed implant 86%, and if you get out to nine years, control is 60%, and the seed implant is still over 80%. So you've got control overall in your seed implant arm of 80 to 90% at nine years. progression-free survival, um, uh, Okay, all oh, right. and so this is a, just looking at the uh, multivariate analysis, and the bottom line is all these different factors uh, proved important, and this looks at intermediate risk disease. They found intermediate risk disease, they had control of disease, progression-free survival at nine years of over 90%. In the control arm, that number was 70%. In the high-risk arm, they had control of nearly 80% in nine years. Control arm, under 60%. Now, I am not immediately throwing C's and external beam radiation into all my intermediate and high-risk patients. Why is this? Well, what are we looking at? It's biochemical progression-free survival. That's the measured endpoint here. And that is showing differences at seven to nine years. That doesn't mean they have more metastases. It doesn't mean that, or less metastasis, it doesn't mean that that the fellows with seeds live longer, it just means their PSAs aren't going up as soon. So does that translate into survival benefit? Maybe. But you have to wait a few more years to actually see it. And in the meanwhile, we have to be very careful about making recommendations just based on a PSA test. So, and the other problem with this is that urinary side effects are greater when you put in seeds, and so that we were, and this is overall survival showed no difference, and very quickly, grade three toxicities in GU were higher. This is any cumulative incidence, 20 versus 5%. And you're looking at prevalence, so in other words, disease, uh, uh, toxicities that stuck at five years, you can see the LDR was uh, over 8%, but externally uh, about just over 2%, so a difference of about 6% between the two arms. So long-term toxicity worse with seeds by about 6%. So that's that. Uh, I do offer this to patients as an option, but clearly to a younger patient who wants to be aggressive, they, if they're older, they're probably never going to actually get to the point where they're going to see clinical improvements as compared to just PSA improvements. But if you're 60, in your early 60s, and you're coming in with a you know, high-risk disease, and you want to really try to get control of it, uh, a 6% loss in terms of urinary toxicity is certainly something to consider. And in terms of the rectal toxicity, now we're putting in the spacers, uh, we're getting a little cocky about that uh, because, again, the, when uh, when the seeds are in, uh, the, the amount of rectum that's getting 100% of the planned dose is somewhere around zero. And, and that, that's, not, that's not a speculation. That's we, We've seen this over and over and over again. A couple of new things uh, coming down the pike. There may be other ways to boost the prostate. We're looking at SBRT um, as a potential way of doing that, stereotactic body radiation, just to mention it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was talking with Jack uh, Jack Hoops, who's got a really great study going on uh, with doxataxel infused spacers. Different kind of spacer, not the same thing we were talking about. These are the spacers in between the little seeds that we're putting in with the needles and brachytherapy. But this might be a way of delivering some local radiation sensitizing chemotherapy along with the radioactive seeds. So it might be a way to actually improve uh, disease response. And if you can do that, then you can lower the dose that you're using with your seeds, in which case you get less GU toxicity, which would actually address that problem we were just looking at. And just a few words of thanks to um, the GU group here at uh, Dartmouth, our GU Oncology, um, uh, Clinical Oncology Group, and of course those folks who've been very active in making our brachytherapy program a success. Thanks everyone. Uh, maybe one or two questions, although we're over time. I'm really sorry about that. You sorry. You know with this case, we're now of the those raggedo, Oh, into, into the, spots where the is That one would have to be confident you knew where they were. That would be the thing. But yeah. y- y- any time we start sparing tissue, we start thinking about dose escalation. That's true. I would have to, we would have to be very careful. Yes. You might have said it and I might have missed it. What's the relative distribution between patients under similar conditions that offer surgery versus uh the brain today? Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear you. That what's the difference of uh, the, the distribution uh, between let's say patients in uh, similar circumstances that offer surgery versus uh It's a very person-specific thing. You know, some people just really want to get the darn tumor out, and they may be 80 years old and yet still just want that surgery and get it out of them. Uh, Others are really worried about side effects from surgery. Surgery has a higher incidence of erectile dysfunction than does radiation. That's been proven. And so for uh, a younger fellow where um, they're in a happy relationship and they'd like to maintain uh, their their current level of function, uh, they will think about surgery very hard, very carefully. And um, uh, generally, as people get older, they tend towards radiation just because radiation offers comparable tumor control rates as, uh, as compared to surgery for at least 20 to 25 years after therapy. Uh, so once a guy hits 70, radiation starts looking pretty good. But as I say, some just really want to get it out. And uh, and can't argue with it. It's a great, great treatment. If, if the erections aren't working, then that mm-hmm. issue's not on the table. A slight risk of spotting, but you have to trade that off against other potential issues with radiation. Um, so, it, and then there are also logistical issues. Radiation, if you're going to get externally, you've got to come in every day from Monday through Friday, five days a week for many weeks. And doing seeds, you know, they may not like the sound of all those side effects. But if you do surgery, you have to wear—you actually have to wear a Foley catheter for a couple of weeks, and then that comes out, and then you still have to do, to do your Kegel exercises and try to get this, uh, you know, the dripping to stop. Are there other body sites where that kind of spacer would be valuable to, you know, They are really keen on trying to figure that out. (laughs) Uh, And I I, I imagine the answer is probably yes. Uh, uh, You know, it's clearly being this product isn't being used, but there are other products like it which are being used in very uh, interesting parts of the body. Uh, But I would imagine, you know, if, if we do start, you know, doing these kind of focal radiation things that... Uh, you know, in the brain or other places, you, you had a sensitive structure, and you could access it. Um, I mean, it could be used intra-op, you know, and one could place it intra-op while the, you still have an open cavity, and then things could get closed, and then one could, you know, take advantage of that while, uh, while it's there, and then, uh, thankfully, it goes away again. All right, everybody, thank you for coming.